Loving God, I pray that you will grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and minds to understand your word and your world as best we can this day and every day. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we're continuing our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, but, but before I get to the verse I want to talk about today, I want to say something about translation and what can sometimes get lost in it. Okay, so some of you were alive and some of you weren't, but remember or recall that way back in 1956, the leader of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, gave a speech where he said in Russian, Muy vas pachronim. Now in English, muy vas pachronim means literally, we will what? bury you. We will bury you. That is literally the correct translation of that, and it sounded kind of ominous in the context of the Cold War and nuclear weapons and all of that kind of stuff. So almost immediately, those words, we will bury you, appeared on newspaper headlines, breathless headlines all over the world. The only problem is that we will bury you in Russian can also have a very different connotation, which is the one that Khrushchev thought he was making, but it got lost in translation. It basically means in this sense, we will outlast you, not we will destroy you. We will outlast you. Communism will last longer than capitalism. Now, did that work out? Not so well for Khrushchev, but the point was he was saying something that in his own language came across as sort of like relatively innocuous bluster, but in another language, it came across as a serious threat. That's how important translation can be. So, what I have to say today about the Bible text I'm, we're gonna pay attention to is that it has maybe caused more translation headaches than any other verse in Scripture. In Hebrew, it's only two words, lo tirzach. The word lo simply means don't. But the other word, the second word, is where the problem comes up, ratzach. Because depending on which English translation of the Bible you have, Ratzak is either translated as kill or murder. But those two words don't exactly mean the same thing, do they? Now, in the Revised Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm using today, it says, you shall not kill. A lot of us grew up hearing that, or thou shalt not kill, which is how it's said in the King James Version of the Bible. But most recent translations thought that using the word kill to translate ratzak was too broad. After all, you know, the Old Testament seems full of killing, and God seems to condone a whole lot of it, like war and capital punishment for various offenses and the, the ritual sacrifice of animals, or just the plain killing of animals. There's killing all over the Old Testament. So these more recent, recent translations changed the word ratzak from kill to murder, since it seemed to make more sense of whether or not a killing was justified. And that's the word that you'll come across in the two most common 
English language or most popular English language translations of the Bible, the New Revised Standard Version and the New International Version. But even so, you shall not murder isn't quite right either. I mean, I don't know about you, but that kind of seems obvious, doesn't it? Why would God have to tell us that? I mean, by the raising of hands, how many of you have ever committed murder? I'm sorry, I guess on second thought, I'm not going to ask anybody that question. But the point is, most people don't need to be told not to murder other people. Even murderers know it's wrong, and if they don't, we call them insane. So, it turns out that the best translation of lo tirzach, from Hebrew into English, is probably do not kill or thou shalt not kill. But it's do not kill in a very particular sense. First, in Hebrew, ratzak refers only to killing human beings, not animals. So sorry, vegetarians, there may be lots of other reasons not to eat animals, but you don't find it in that commandment. Second, the word occurs 47 times in the Old Testament with all sorts of shades of meaning. And it's not just about intentional murder. It's also used for accidental killing and for what we would call manslaughter. It's even used when a murderer is him, him or herself killed by an executioner. It's all ratzak, it's all killing, and it all violates God's essential overarching concern to preserve human life. You hear this all over the Bible. God is the creator of life, so only God has a right to give life and to take it away. What's more, human beings are created in the image of God. We hear right in the first chapter of, of Genesis. In the image of God. So anyone who kills another person is destroying the divine image alive in them. So, the sixth commandment is categorical. You shall not kill. You shall not take away human life. Now, the problem, of course, is that human beings have taken away other human lives from time immemorial. Right? Don't need to tell you that. So, because of that, because of the consistent violation of that commandment, the sixth commandment, do not kill, because of that, God demands a remedy or when human lives are taken. So there are four whole chapters of rules in the book of Deuteronomy for how to deal with the taking of life, whether it's homicide or in war or uh, all sorts of manners of criminal justice. It's all there. And in every single case, the taking of human life is only justified as acting on God's behalf in order to save other lives. It's never left to an individual's own hands or even a nation's to seek vengeance. Proper judicial procedure always must be followed, and killing is always seen as the last resort. That's what the Bible says. Now, of course, people have justified killing and war and all these things for all sorts of reasons, and sometimes justified. But in the Bible, the absolute principle, the core principle, is to preserve life. 
And you hear this more expansive desire to preserve and protect life that underlies the demand not to kill in commentaries written by rabbis throughout the centuries. And I just knocked over my sermon there. And I'm not going to respond violently to my piece of paper. So anyway, I had to read this actual quote here. Rabbi Ibn Ezra from uh, the 11th century in Spain, he wrote this. Do not murder either physically or by your speech. By lying, gossiping, deliberately giving fatal advice or false advice, or failing to reveal a secret that might save a life. On a more poet, in a more poetic vein, speaking in God's voice, Rabbi Nachmanides in uh, 10th century Palestine wrote, do not vandalize my creation by spilling human blood. Powerful image. Now, of course, that raises all sorts of issues. You know, how do we preserve or promote human life, especially when, when in the media, we're always hearing about, maybe talking about, and worrying about things that are big deals in our society, like, like war, right now especially, or, or capital punishment, or abortion, all those big issues. But there's also just the more broader question, the broader question. How do we preserve or promote life in a world where so many lives are so senselessly threatened or taken every day in so many ways. That is a huge, complicated question, and I'm not going to answer it to everybody's or anybody's satisfaction today, not even close to my own. But to get a start at answering, how do we promote human life? Let's turn to the words of another very well-known rabbi who lived a long time ago, Jesus of Nazareth. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, he writes these words that are in the bulletin. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And you, if, if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So, when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. How's that for intensifying the command not to kill? Seems almost impossible to follow what Jesus is saying here. It's as if some, just calling somebody a fool, even if they so richly deserve it, just calling them a fool is as worthy of hell as murder. What on earth is Jesus talking about here? Well, first of all, his reference to hell here isn't just about, isn't, isn't about eternal damnation. He's, he's talking about the need, the crucial need to be set right if you do something seriously wrong to another person. 
And second, and this is important about translation as well, second, Jesus is making a play on words here. He is using the similarity between the Hebrew word for kill, which is raka, and fool. I'm sorry, kill is ratsa, and fool is raka. Ratsa and raka. He's using a pun to make a point about what is so often at the root of killing. And that root is anger. It's anger. The same anger that makes you lash out and call somebody a fool, if it isn't dealt with, it can escalate. Maybe not right away, but if you're holding on to a lot of anger and lashing out at a lot of people, it can escalate into something that's much more dangerous to human life. So Jesus is saying, be at peace reconcile with one another. Don't even bother making an offering to God without first making up with somebody you happen to be in conflict with. Very clear. He couldn't be clearer. After all, what God wants most isn't more of your stuff. What God wants is your heart. God wants your heart at peace and promoting the life and well-being of other people. And that's why in John's Gospel, Jesus demands that, what? We love one another even as I have loved you. We call that the law of love. The law of love. What the, what the, um, the song, the anthem was all about. Keep my commandments if you love me. That's what it's all about. And Paul writes about it in Romans 13, again, referring back to the law not to kill. He says, the person who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal and shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he continues, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, that's what it all boils down to for us as Christians. The negative command, you shall not kill, is backed up and intensified by a positive demand to love one another. To recognize the image of God alive in all people, no matter who, where they are, and do what you can to preserve their life and promote their well-being. Now, is this always easy to do? Uh, no, it's not. Of course not. Especially with all the anger out there in the world. And sometimes, all the anger right here in our own hearts. So the other day I was talking to a friend of mine who's a rabbi, and we talked about a whole lot of things, especially just how incredibly hard it has been for the people in his congregation, his family, he has family and friends in Israel. He didn't lose anybody, but he knows people who did. He told me how he's responding as a rabbi 
to all the horrible events of the past couple of weeks in Israel and also in Gaza, in Palestine. There is so much anger over there. And so much anger right here, too. Whether you happen to be a Jew or an Arab or anything else, there is so much anger. And sometimes it's justifiable anger. Coming along with all the other complex, complicated feelings we can have at a time like this. But my friend also told me how some of the folks in his congregation, you know what, have started lashing out at each other too. Sometimes over incredibly petty things. And that's not surprising. Because as we all know, anger is a powerful emotion. Gets triggered by all sorts of things. And, and once it gets started, it's really hard to manage. Hard to recognize it in ourselves, too. I mean, how many times have you heard somebody say with gritted teeth, I am not angry? I'm glad my wife isn't here. She'd be pointing at me right now. The reality is that anger is often a secondary emotion. It's the stunted offspring of, of other primary emotions, or it can be, like fear. Many of us have been taught to hide our fear, so we break out in anger instead. And the same thing can happen with sadness or envy or jealousy. These emotions themselves can also feel really uncomfortable to us, and so we lash out in response in anger sometimes. Our most primitive line of defense. The key to dealing with it, then, is to search beneath the surface feeling of rage and try to figure out what might really be going on. And once we're able to be honest with ourselves and, and name those true feelings, we can start to get some control over them. Now, of course, all this takes time and sometimes a whole lot of time, and there are certainly, as I said, times when, when the feeling or the expression of anger itself is legitimate. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't telling us to just get rid of angry feelings that happen to come up with us, within us, especially when someone threatens our lives or the lives of others. He's not saying just get rid of it. The goal isn't to repress anger. The goal is to learn how to handle it. That's why I really like the illustration that Shannon Kuhn used last week in her sermon. I told her I was going to steal it this week. <laughs> she was talking about someone, if you, if you remember, that she just could not get along with, not get along with. For whatever reason, this person just drove her crazy, rubbed her the wrong way, and she started seeing this other person as an enemy, of all things. And then Shannon talked to an older woman in her congregation, in her church, and about the problem. And this woman reminded her that Jesus said to pray for your enemy. That doesn't mean you have to like him. But just pray, she said, on a daily basis for their well-being, as you would pray for yourself. Just try it. And Shannon did. And within three days, she says, of taking on this new and admittedly very uncomfortable spiritual discipline of praying for her enemy, within three days, she began to feel more at peace. And they reconciled. 
Now, is praying for your enemy going to end the killing in the Middle East or anywhere else? Of course not. Of course not. The roots of that conflict and so many other conflicts are so complex. There's no easy answers. But prayer can be a place to start. Can be a place to start. Last week, someone in my online Bible study said, you know, the world is so unhinged these days, and if I can't work on myself, what hope is there? What hope is there? And that is what Jesus is telling us to do. Deal with your anger. Reconcile. Love your neighbor. And respect and protect their life as best you can. There's an old story about the painter Leonardo da Vinci. I don't know if it's actually true or apocryphal, but it's a great story. So Leonardo, while he was working on his famous painting, The Last Supper, he got angry with somebody. Angry. And the two men had words, and they broke up and on bad terms, and then Leonardo returned to the church where he's painting this world-famous fresco, but it was no use. He couldn't do it. He couldn't paint anything and be happy with it. And as it happened, he had just reached the point where he was going to paint the face of Jesus. And so he tried over and over, and nothing worked. He just couldn't get the face of the Lord right on the church wall until finally this great artist realized he had to do something. But it wasn't on the fresco. It was on himself. So he put down the brushes, the palette. He went out and found this guy he was angry with. He asked his forgiveness. The man accepted the apology and offered his own. And it was only then that Leonardo could return to the church to finish painting the face of Christ. And there's a powerful message in that story. Whenever we allow our lives to be ruled by anger, we cannot see the face of the Lord or the image of God alive in other people, or it gets extremely hard. Takes some work. So maybe the sixth commandment can serve in some way at least as our guiding principle, our north star in life. Maybe we can understand it as Rabbi Nachmanides did, that we are not to vandalize creation by the spilling of human blood or by letting the lives of others be senselessly taken. Because this world, brothers and sisters, is a living work of art in which every brush stroke is special. So you shall not, court, you shall not kill at its core is a call for peace, for shalom, for salam. And it's a command to translate that peace into an ethic of love that preserves life, does everything it can to preserve and promote life on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.